Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So this passage is quite a troubling one, troubling for the disciples, for the wealthy young ruler in particular, and for us today because it seems a little bit radical It's a little bit abrupt. It's perhaps a little bit extreme to sit comfortably with us. But it's easy to miss the truth when it's delivered in moderation. Instead, what's given here is an undiluted uh, thing, a kind of way of telling the rich young ruler what he had to do. It's completely unmistakable what is required of him. And it's that kind of truth-telling that Jesus is known for. The encounter with Jesus that the rich young man had (laughs) included in it words of great comfort about eternal life and about how God can make anything possible. But at the same time, it came with serious warnings about behaviour, about attitudes and judgments. And it's worth noticing that in the Gospels, this story comes in the midst of a series of incidents and parables that all show us something about the character of discipleships and how we should live as true disciples of Jesus. You see, he was telling the man how to live as a true disciple of Jesus. He loved the rich man, but he still spoke harsh words to him. And he knew the barriers that the man had to truly following him. He challenged him to set aside those barriers and to himself become a fully committed disciple. So let's think about what actually happened. This event is mentioned in three of the four Gospels. Matthew describes him as a young man. Luke describes him as a ruler. And all of them agree that he is, in fact, very, very rich. So this um, has been debated down through the years, but he is arguably one of the few men ever to fall at Jesus' feet and leave in a worse state than when he came. When he came to him... It was because Jesus was about to leave town. So this was his last chance to see him face to face. 
This was his last chance to ask him the burning question that he wanted to ask him. And so he ran up to him and he fell on his knees and with real humility, he said, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. So actually, this young man, this rich young ruler, was actually quite impressive. All these I have kept since I was a boy. That's impressive. But more than that, he also has an impressive CV. He's a ruler. In Greek, he's an archon. I think that's how you say it. It doesn't really matter. But he's someone who's prominent in society. And he's someone who has authority. Um, There were people who will have served under him. And he's a man of influence over other people. But although he might have had power in regards to men, when it came to his relationship with God, it was a whole different ballgame. So let's consider very quickly just how much this man had going for him. We know he's a man of incredible wealth. We have agreed that. He's um, got many possessions, but we know that he's not satisfied. He was young. Apparently, he'd achieved success at a young age. He was active and strong. He had many good days ahead of him. He was moral. He'd followed the commandments since he was a child. So we heard he never committed adultery. He never put another man to death. He never took anything that didn't belong to him. He never gave false witness. He never defrauded or cheated anyone. He always honoured his mother and father. He was the type of man not to mistreat anyone or to be involved in any dodgy dealings. He wasn't a foul mouth, he wasn't an abuser, he wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't any of those things. But his morality couldn't save him. His morality is impressive, but it couldn't save him because Jesus doesn't have a list of things that we have to do to achieve salvation. He doesn't have a check sheet of prerequisites. We know this man is religious. He strictly adhered to the Jewish religion. He attended the synagogue. He kept the Jewish feasts. It doesn't get any better than this. He really is a good catch for any Jewish woman. After all, he's a powerful man. He's got plenty of money. He's young, good morals, and on top of that, he's religious. He's sincere. He means well. He wants to inherit eternal life. He's not trying to trick Jesus like many of the rulers of the day did. He's not attempting to trap him. He's genuinely wanting to ask him a question. But sincerity can't save him either. But in his sincerity, he came and asked Jesus what was necessary. What was necessary for eternal life? Now, this man had definitely come to the right person. He knew Jesus was the one who could answer that question. If you want to know about an illness, you call a doctor. If you want to know about schools, you can call a teacher. If you want to know about computers, you call an IT man. If you want to know about eternal life, then Jesus is your man. He asked the right question. But as we can see, he made the wrong decision. The rich young man referred to Jesus as good master. And you'll know that Jesus said, you know, you can't call me good. He said, um, yeah, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, he wasn't being down on himself. It was just simply that um, people, Jews at the time, didn't call anyone good except for God himself. 
So if he really meant to use the word good, if he was recognizing that Jesus was in fact God, then surely he'd be willing to do whatever it was Jesus asked him to do. And Luke 18 verse 22 says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. Now, I don't believe that that's a universal command for us today. I'm sure you'll be pleased to know. But it's like he's saying, it's like Jesus is saying, yes, there are some impressive things about you. You're rich, you're young, you're a ruler. You're moral, religious, and sincere, but you lack one thing. And that thing is a true commitment to following him. Simply because all of those other things were getting in the way. Jesus gave him just one straightforward thing to do. I say straightforward thing to do. He told him to sell everything and give it to the poor and then follow him. The aim here is for the man to follow Jesus. But he can't do that until he can make him his number one priority. He can't follow Jesus unless he's willing to lay aside every weight and sin that gets in the way. And this case, it was his attachment to worldly things. But in the midst of this command, there's also a promise. If he lets go of his earthly treasure, he'll have treasure in heaven. So let's think about what this man is actually being asked to do. He's being asked to sell everything, give his stuff to the poor, give his proceeds to the poor, um, who are essentially the least able to reciprocate. And we're told when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the man became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus had previously taught his disciples that no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus had taught them that you cannot serve God and money. And now there's the situation where this is the main issue. Can this rich young man really become a follower of Jesus? Money, however, isn't the only thing that he asks the man to give up. Yes, he does ask him to give up his possessions. He asks him to sell what he has and give it to the poor. But he also asks him, along with that, to give up status and influence that wealth affords. People make way for the wealthy, hoping that some of that wealth will rub off on them. At the very least, people bow to the wealthy to keep them from becoming their enemies. Power, wealth is power. It buys influence. It buys others who will now let the wealthy have their own way. And Jesus is asking him to give that up too. Community leadership, the man isn't very likely to continue as a respected ruler without his wealth. If he gives up his wealth, he'll be misunderstood and resented by the other influential people, and he wouldn't be a ruler for very long. And family, the young man probably comes from a wealthy family, and if he gives up that wealth, then his family will probably have something to say about it. And we know what he decided to do, don't we? He allowed his money to control him rather than the other way around. The man loved his wealth and his power and his leadership and his status and influence more than he loved God or his neighbour. His mind was focused on many earthly things and not on higher things, not on God himself. Instead of trusting the living God who can do impossible things, this man was trusting unearth, well, earthly, uncertain riches. Silver and gold were what he had. 
And it was those things that he served. So the question is, what do we serve? But we'll come back to that in a little bit. Instead, what's this business about the camel and the eye of a needle thing? I'm sure it's familiar. I'm sure you all have heard the phrase many, many times. But Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus used the biggest animal in Palestine and the smallest opening. And as we think about that, there are a few different schools of thought as to what exactly he was referring to. Some people reckon that the needle Jesus was speaking of was the needle gate, supposedly a low and narrow after-hours entrance to the city. It was found in the walls surrounding Jerusalem, but it was purposefully small for security reasons. The camel could only go through it by stripping off any saddles or packs and crawling through on its knees. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about as he's wanting the rich man to get rid of anything that would hinder him from truly following Jesus. And that's perhaps similar to the camel taking everything off its back to get through the opening. The problem with this line of thought, though, is that there's no real evidence for this kind of thing existing quite apart from the fact that no sane camel driver would ever choose to do that when bigger ones are available. Others claim that Jesus was using a figure of speech that exaggerates for emphasis. Jesus uses technique at other times, like referring to a planking eye and things like that. Whichever it is, the message is clear. It's just not possible for anyone to be saved on their own merits. Wealth and power and all of those things cannot save us, just like a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. You see, wealth was seen as proof of God's approval, and it was often taught that rich people were blessed by God and therefore would end up in heaven. But Jesus completely destroyed the idea, along with the notion that people can earn eternal life. The disciples were amazed by this and asked, who then can be saved? You see, if the wealthy among them which included the super-spiritual Pharisees and scribes, were unworthy of heaven, then what hope was there for a poor man? And what hope was there for them? You see, Jesus' answer was the essence of the whole gospel. He replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And here he's saying that we're saved by grace, God's grace. It's impossible for us to earn salvation. Salvation is only made possible through God. We're already told back in the Beatitudes that the poor will inherit the kingdom of God. When we recognise our own inabilities to do anything to justify ourselves before a holy God, then we might just recognise the fact that we need grace in our lives. The rich man is often blind to his spiritual poverty because he's proud of his achievements and contented with his wealth. He's as likely to humble himself before God as a camel is to pass through the eye of a needle. But the challenge is to be totally committed to following Jesus, to be true disciples. And we are called to that kind of commitment, the kind that puts God first above everything else, the kind that means we're fully devoted to following his will for our lives wherever that might lead, and that we'll tell other people about him through our words and our lifestyles. Our lifestyle should speak to others about our commitment to follow him, just as the rich man's life would have done if he'd have given up what Jesus had asked him to give up. But let's look again at verse 27, which is my total favourite verse in the whole passage. 
Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Or other versions say, with God all things are possible. God can do the impossible. And I wonder if we really, really believe that. Do we really believe that where we can't, God can? With our own abilities, we might be unable, but with God we're able to do anything. And that shouldn't really come as a surprise to us. I love that verse because it's not just some things, but it's all things. How amazing is that? We're talking about God who created life from a desolate planet, who at the wave of Moses' hands parted the Red Sea and produced that dry land, who raised an army from a valley of dry bones, and who even destroyed death by bringing his son back to life. If he can do those things, and he did, then imagine what he can do with a life that trusts him completely. Jesus said, uh, with a faith sight... With faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains in Matthew 17. In Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's all things, which is anything, everything, with the power of God. Our doing and working in his kingdom is not about our ability, but about our faith in him. With God, all things are possible. He can transform our doubts into confidence, He can make the impossible things become reality. A man told a story about an elder in a church who had an incredible faith. He said that the elder would sit at church board meetings. That sounds very formal, doesn't it? But he'd listen to the plans and dreams and proposals presented. And then he would ask questions. And after he was satisfied, he would always say exactly the same thing. He would say, why not? If it's for God and his kingdom, then why not? In fact, his words were so predictable that some of the board decided to see how far they could go and still get the same response. So they came up with a lavish proposal, an idea that seemed totally ridiculous. There was no way in the world they could ever raise enough money. No way they could ever work hard enough to see their plans fulfilled. So they presented it, and this elder listened, He asked his questions, and when they were through, he said, why not? If it's for Christ and his kingdom, then why not? If we're doing it for Christ and God is part of it, then why not? So the question is, if it's for Christ and his kingdom, then why not? You see, we need some why not Christians who can exercise a kind of faith, an incredible faith. We need to be doing some things that cause the world to look on and think, how can they do that? And the only answer that can be given is that God did it. That which is impossible, that which is impossible with men is made possible with God. But to do that, we too are challenged in a similar way to which the rich young ruler was. We too are asked to sell all we have and follow Jesus, not literally, but we're asked to put Jesus first in our lives. It might be literally in some circumstances. We're asked to make him our number one focus and priority. We're asked to live as wholly committed Christians, wholly devoted followers of him. And when we begin to put God first in all things, and we allow God to have full control of our lives, be that collectively or as a church, then we might just see that God can do the impossible in and through us. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you that you are a God who can do anything. We thank you that you can take our impossible situations and make them possible. So Lord, we bring to you any impossible situations that we're facing now. Whatever it is that we might find difficult and whatever it is that we need your, your hand upon, we offer it to you now and ask that you will make things possible in your will. Amen. Let's go. Let's go.